Howdy. This is a uh, fuck. Welcome to the fail. Uh, no, no, I got this. I got this. All right. Welcome to the art of the fail. This is a podcast hosted by Christian Borgazan, co-founder of Bruja, and myself, Chris Buttonham, co-founder of Obi.ai. We chat with startups and entrepreneurs about their failures in hopes to uncover incredible lessons and unmask the stigma around failing today. <laughs> Nobody likes this shit. Let's just get started with yeah. that. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, awesome. This is the art of the fail. Good to see you, Christian. Good to see you too. We Today, we have a really, really awesome uh, guest with us, uh, Caitlin McGregor from a company down in Waterloo called Plum. Uh, hey, Caitlin. How's it going? Fine, thanks. Thanks for including me on the show. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to get to uh, uh, have Caitlin introduce herself in uh, just a few minutes. But as as you all know, we like to start off with uh, with some some failures of our own and some fuck ups of recent days. So Christian, do you, uh, I'll take the stage. Yeah. yeah. So mine, the most recent thing that I can really think of is uh, something that has happened in Slack for myself recently. Um, it's not too bad of a of a fuck up, but it's still something that probably shouldn't have happened. Um, so right now I'm in about three or four different Slack channels. So when I'm you're like using, 13. yeah, are you really? Yeah. Wow, it's brutal. All right, I have nothing on you then. <laughs> um, when you're on your phone using it, like it, it can be pretty hard to know which channel you're in sometimes. So I was actually sending out a message um, that should have been an internal message to my team, but instead I sent it out on the Slack channel in a very general channel with, you know, hundreds of eyes on it. Um, Now, luckily I caught that before I continued (laughs) going on top of that because that probably would have, that yeah, that probably would have pissed off my teammates for sure, especially what I was yeah, talking you, about. But you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Now. So that that's mine. Like I said, nothing nothing too serious, but obviously something that uh, I just need to be more careful of. God bless Slack for having the uh, the delete feature. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so mine mine is we were um, very candidly um, I was talking to a a churned customer of ours. Um, and these, these, these people were really, really awesome to us, really open to just, you know, trying new things and, and really providing feedback, even when it did at work. And, and really that just helped us, helped us, um, you know, iterate on the product. But, um, I was in this conversation with them recently about sort of re-engaging, trying out a new version to hopefully satisfy, um, what we, what we fell short on previously. And I found myself, um, over promising and under delivering, which as we both have talked about mm-hmm. is completely against our, my mantra yeah. of trying to under promise and over deliver. Um, but I think I often get caught up in, you know, especially when you're, you're a small startup trying to, um, you try to, you do everything that you can exactly, to just lock yeah. down that client. Exactly. Because that's your, that's really, um, in my opinion, your, your competitive advantage when you're so small to the, you know, to the monoliths, um, to compete. And so, um, that was a, you know, that was a, a bit of a reality check and like, luckily they're super, super understanding. And I caught myself before, you know, I'd gone too far, but, um, anyway, I think something, something learned definitely for sure. For sure. 
Cool. So, uh, Caitlin, thank you again so much for, for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit um, about yourself and a little bit about Plum, a really, really awesome HR tech uh, company. Thanks. Uh, well, this is my third company that I've built. I built two others uh, for other people and then uh, had, was kind of my first customer. I was my own customer uh, and saw an opportunity to turn Plum into into a product and instead of building businesses for other people, do it for myself. And so now it's been five and a half years. And uh, what we do at Plum is that we automate industrial organizational psychology and we're now actually marrying it with machine learning and AI. And we are able to predict a successful hire five times uh, greater than a traditional resume could. And so we are able to see where somebody could succeed in a job that they may not have even applied to or in a position in a company an employee could be transferred into and be even more successful. And it's looking at you know, somebody's uh, aptitude and, and their transferable skills and, and looking at better predictors of, of performance than um, things like where they went to school or, or previously worked. That's really awesome. Do yeah. you find, uh, just um, before we dig into some, some, some stories, um, do you find that uh, there's been a lot of pickup for Plum um, to, um, for companies to remove uh, bias when, when hiring? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big part. Um, it's really interesting, though, because we're finding that it tends to be the larger companies that are sure. understanding the importance of removing bias rather than the, the smaller, younger companies. It seems, seems to be more established companies that will have created um, diversity and inclusion positions within their company or uh, committees or groups, and that they're you know taking a very... Um, diligent approach of actually implementing tools that solve that rather than just claiming to. So it's really important that, you know, that we're, everything we do is based in industrial organizational psychology. Everything is, has been proven by validation studies. It's all well-baked and well, well-proven versus, um, you know, it, it just sounds cool. And so it tends to be those larger companies that have, have really, um, you know, they'll bring in a third party evaluator and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll have a committee to evaluate the competition and they'll get down to which one, can actually deliver on it. And in those particular cases, we're beating out the legacy providers and we're beating out the new, you know, fancy um, startups because we actually do it better in terms of being able to design the hiring process differently so that you get a more diverse outcome. And so we've been really focusing on diversity by design. You've got to change the whole process if you want, want a better outcome. I like that and not to get on a, a hot button topic, but I, I mean, I'm a proponent of, you know, meritocracy, and I think um, that's really what diversity is and, and should be, is um, is what you guys are promoting with, with the addition of some really awesome technology. So hats off to you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, cool. So I know you you said that uh, you had a couple stories you wanted to chat, chat with us about. Um, why don't you dig in? Yeah. Um, so I was trying to think about kind of some of the big lessons that I've learned and, and some of the things that I think are are areas that were big discussions early on and, and I think have proven to be the case. So, you know, there everybody knows the statistics. You know, there are a lot less women CEOs in the tech space than men. And, you know, we've definitely heard the, the studies of things like, you know, TechCrunch tech Disrupt analyzed all of their pitches and saw that, 
you know, women CEO were always asked kind of questions like prove it to me questions, whereas men were asked more aspirational, like tell me how great this is going to be. And that results in women raising less money and at lower valuations. And in my experience, taking, you know, three times longer than a lot of my, my male colleagues. And so kind of some of the fails that I did early on, not, not understanding the impact is that, um, one of my co-founders is my husband and I'm a CEO. And what kept happening is when I would go in and pitch our business, people were distracted like immediately by the fact that we were husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we just introduced my, ourselves. Hi, I'm Caitlin McGregor and this is Neil McGregor. And it's like, they didn't really hear anything else that came after that because each one of them would go to their own thought process of, Oh, I've invested a married couple in the past and didn't work out or I could never work with my spouse. So there's no way that that's going to work. And, you know, they know that the statistics of that, you know, founders breaking up over time is quite high, especially the longer you're along and divorce rates are quite high. So like, Oh, well, startup founder rates are high for, you know, breaking up and, you know, married couples are high for breaking up. Therefore, you know, and I couldn't do this with my spouse. Therefore, this is just a recipe for disaster. And so, which is totally untrue. Um, five and a half years in, you know, going strong on the uh, on the co-founder relationship, and you know, looking for the next ten years of, of working together. And from years. a marriage standpoint, you know, we just celebrated our ten year uh, wedding anniversary this summer. So, you know, anything, I think it's a massive asset because when things are getting really, really rough, you yeah. know how to get through them because you know, co-founder issues are are the least of the type of challenges. You know, when you've got kids and more right. things going on. So I feel like. We are more future-proof than most co-founders, but right. it was a distraction. So one of the things I had to do early on was basically not bring my co-founder with me to pitches. Like it started very early being, no, I'm the CEO and I'm fundraising solo. Yeah. No co-founders in the room yeah. and it's just me. And um, and so it meant that my, my co-founder um, wasn't really being introduced until after the first impression of me had been established. I mean, a lot of the times you'll hear from investors that, they invest in, you know, the team as much as they invest in in the company. And really what that means is they're investing in early on the quality of the CEO and whether or not they believe that CEO is going to be able to execute and, and has the right vision and, and has the integrity that they want. And so once I would establish a strong relationship with the investors after one or two or three meetings, then once it was really well established, it was like, oh, and by the way, meet the rest of my team. And oh, by the way, one of my teammates happens to also be my husband. And by that point, it doesn't matter. They've all, all of their first impressions have been, been made. And it's really interesting from a, from a hiring standpoint, if you look at interviews, like people decide within the first six, I think what the stuff, like within the first 90 seconds of meeting somebody, they already decide if they like them or not. Yeah. Pretty much the rest of the interview is just confirmation bias. So it's the same thing with when you pitch. So I, I got into debates with other married couple, um, you know, founders and they were like, Oh no, no. Like we, like, this is a selling point that, you know, this is a family business. And very quickly they also realized that they needed to change kind of how they presented themselves. And so I'd say it was a fail early on, not presenting ourselves as, as separate. And it's hard. Like I'm now part of a new program in Toronto and and we have our first kind of meeting in front of these really big people. And I had to go through this now five and a half years later and go, okay, am I going to even bring, yeah. my co-founder. And this is the first time that I'm bringing him in the first meeting. And I'm, I'm terrified, but, um, it's a new direction. Like it's, it's, uh, it's a new direction on machine learning and AI. And, uh, my co-founder is the head of product, like director of product. 
he genuinely like is the absolute best person to be in the room for these discussions. And if I don't include him, it would really hurt our business by him not getting to hear this information firsthand. So I'm going back into it of like knowing that it's going to be something that potentially could be distracting, but at the same time, knowing that by having to keep him back in the corner hidden is also hurtful for the business. So we'll see in, in next month if, uh, if I made the right choice by bringing him in, he's hopefully going to sit in the back of the room, but still be there. (laughs) Well, I think, I think that's really the, the most important thing. Like, I mean, we can, we can argue whether or not it's right or wrong. Um, right. But I think what you've done, um, actually to what Hong Wei, uh, aptly pointed out on a previous episode was, you know, it's not really a fail. I appreciate the the story. I think it's great. And I'm, I, I agree with you on how you phrased it, but you know, you, you're playing the game in a sense. Um, right. And you're, you're sort of playing the, the hand that you're dealt and you were able to, realize early on how you needed to iterate to position yourself um, for success and if you know if, if that's what you have to do then then that's what you have to do and and I like how you know a later iteration of this is actually you bringing him into bringing these him meetings back into, yeah. and, and and you have um, you know a reason a justification as to why um, I think that's really smart I, I remember when we were in 500 startups um, um, Marvin, who hopefully I'll get on this show eventually. He's a character. He's the head of the accelerator and he used to just rip into, uh, um, two man pitching teams for like fundraising. Um, I remember like the first night we did this, um, like everybody went up and did a, a one minute just intro pitch. And, uh, one of the companies did it as a duo no and he just tore them apart <laughs> he's like tweedledee tweedledum what the fuck are you doing up there <laughs> uh so you know there's a lot there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh data to say that uh you know whether you're your husband or wife or not uh one founder is a is a good um position to be in when 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 pitching for money anyways i would i would agree and i think that's a lesson to be learned yeah for sure just yeah. husband and wife is that really like fundraising and pitching takes up a lot of time. Oh, yeah. And when you have two co-founders spending all that time on it, that's time that one person isn't spending growing sales or growing your product or doing something else. And right. so, you know, it's much better on a numerous reasons to just have one person doing it. And then once you know that the investor's serious and that there's going to be a real ROI for spending that hour, then, you know, bring them in later on and, and add to the credibility. But you need to be able to sell it as a solo first and foremost. And anything after that is, is a distraction for a yeah. whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember hearing something like um, fundraising uh, for founders is like the biggest waste of time. And it's the best it's the best um, argument you can make to investors um, to move quicker is, <laughs> hey, you, if, you, if you're going to give me money, um, it's not best spent, you know, three months in due diligence or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, you bet you'd much rather me be working on the company and, and getting getting your returns. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I just wanted to uh, to note, which was which I thought was kind of cool. I, I actually completely forgot that your your husband was your co-founder. And um, uh, again, to 500 startups, one of my uh, batch mates uh, Christina Jones, she, um, was just featured in, oh 
butcher it. It was Anchor Fortune um, as one of the uh, four, 14, I'm going to ruin this, one of the 14 uh, only African-American women to ever raise more than a million dollars. Um, and what's, what's funny about, uh, Christina is, uh, her husband, um, is her co-founder mm-hmm. and, uh, watching them interact, uh, through 500 startups. Uh, Cause I, th- I believe she's the CEO. Um, uh, she did all the pitching, um, in a lot of ways you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known, uh, that he even, um, you know, was a co-founder, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. um, I, I just thought was interesting having, you know, heard your story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we almost had to make it more of a point that, that there wasn't like that, you know, he could be anybody. And I mean, we're, we have a five person leadership team. And so when we're on that leadership team, you know, it's not even just me being a a co-founder and him being a co-founder, by the time you get to a certain point in your business, um, this is one of the other lessons that I learned is that really like there's a point where you stop being co-founders in so many ways and you start being accountable to your job titles. Yeah, and are you right. doing your job? And so as the CEO, I'm responsible for fundraising. So I need to go and do the fundraising. And he, as director of products, is responsible for delivering on those. And we have a director of sales, we have a director of marketing. And like each of us, we're in that leadership meeting as executives that are responsible for very specific tasks and delivering on those and departments and strategies for those. And so when we come together, we're a real team that's relying on each other for different parts. There isn't this like invisible hierarchy that above and beyond the you know, the, the directors, we also have these co-founders because what happens is you get a lot of companies that have this founder entitlement. They yeah. think that they should get special treatment. They don't think <clears throat> they need to be experts in delivering on their job titles that there's this, this thought that, Oh, well, I should be in charge of this department because I'm a co-founder. And it's like, but are you delivering? Yeah. You know, if I was paying your salary to somebody else, cause I mean, when your co-founders early on and you're not getting paid, yeah, it, it matters because you're not getting paid and, you know, it's, it's the belief you're going to get a return. And so you need to keep them motivated. But by the time you're making kind of half decent salaries, the question is, are you really the best person for the job or should you be hiring somebody else in that can deliver on that title better than anybody else? And so, you know, the thing that, that I irks me with the whole, um, you know, I, it comes up from time to time with people that knew us in the early days about my husband being my co-founder is that like, first of all, like he is the best person in the whole world that could be the head of product. He's the only one that can do exactly what's needed for yeah. that. Yes. He has that like history and insight because he's been there from day one. But like, if you, if we had to hire that role from outside, we couldn't do better at least, you know, maybe if the salary was like five times what it is now, who knows, you know, I'm sure there's somebody <laughs> on the planet that, that could, but for where we're at, there's no one that could come close to it. And so it's, it's like, it almost at this point takes away from his credibility because yeah, right. oh, he's a husband or he's a co-founder. It's like, screw that. None of us have co-founder rights anymore. Right. You know, our, we've, our, our shares have vested. We'll, the benefits of being a co-founder is we'll get a better return than, than, you know, the other employees if, if this all exits one day. But really, you know, our job is to go in and deliver every day on our job titles and none of this co-founder entitlement bullshit. And I see tons of companies somewhere between year four and up where if companies haven't wrapped their heads around that they ha- have a specific job title and they're accountable to it, real dysfunction starts to happen. And so a bigger fail is that it took us a long time to understand, you know, not everybody understood that and, and not everybody's still in the company anymore. Um, but the people that understood it's about delivering to the job, they're still there and 
we've been able to bring in new blood that that understands what performing to to that metric and that yeah co-founder entitlement is to be really really toxic that yeah it's a huge huge issue um I, I'm sure you find that you have to justify for, for his position specifically a lot more than, than you probably should, right? Yeah, and it's really like it takes a, like it's not yeah. fair to him. Like it's, yeah. it's one yeah. of these things. It's like reverse discrimination, like yeah. because you know, and it's it's not fair, and it's and it's okay. Like it, it's part of the things that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, I just wish it was never an issue because he's there because he's the best person for it. And, you know, sometimes he has to be put in the shadows and in the background a bit more than, you know, the fact that, that I have to wait even for these opportunities that he really should be there from day one. It's, it's frustrating, but it's all kind of tied into this whole concept of, um, you know, the outside perception of founders and, and even the outside perception of, of executive teams and, right. and just a, and a larger problem, even amongst companies or in terms of how they view co-founders. So I'd say we don't have dysfunction. We were very, very good in our business now and everyone's exactly where they're supposed to be. Um, but that took us, you know, a while given other people that are no longer there, you know, it took us a while to, to figure that, to figure that out. Um, and, and, you know, I'm good for Neil for being so comfortable. Yeah. Um, not having to be in the limelight and not having to, you know, and for never having founders and founder entitlement, like good for him for kind of never letting his, you know, never having an ego problem like we've seen, um, in other companies and in in other roles. So I, I owe a lot like for, for just how, um, rational and, and healthy he's been in terms of his view in the company and, and letting, you know, and, and recognizing, um, you know, that sometimes he's had to take a step back so that I, I can, be better perceived in the role I'm doing. Yeah, that's a, a tough and admirable position for him to be in. Yeah, and uh, I, I guess my question for you on uh, on that would be like, how long into your business did you guys start to realize that it was no longer about this, I guess, false sense of entitlement and things more shifted to, you know, full-on accountability and, and execution of the roles. Not to say that the accountability and the execution shouldn't be there yeah. from day one, because obviously it should be. But um, Yeah, I'd say four and a half years, okay. and it should have happened, you know, ideally if it could have happened at three and a half years, um, yeah. that would have been better. So I would say, you know, in terms of other other companies, you know, by the time you get to that three-year mark, really look at, you know if you could pay that same salary to somebody else, could they do a better job? Or if you went up 20%, could they do a better job? And if you can, the thing is the person that's in that role, they're not going to really feel good about themselves either because they're not really delivering. And so, and it's tough when you're limited resources, but you know, when we did the first chunk of fundraising, that would have been the first time where we could have said, okay, like let's not just have, um, you know, let's bring in somebody that actually really, really likes doing this is really good at it, for instance, like just, you know, no, I don't think enough people understand that at the three year mark you have, and especially basically once you bring in your first million dollars, right. you need to start saying, okay, we're responsible to employees we're bringing on, we're responsible to investors, let's make sure that everybody is in the role where right. they're best suited for and not just in a role because they want an executive level because they're, they're a co-founder. And let's make sure that you know, we're not just putting up with dysfunction because we're afraid that if we actually admit it, that we'll lose the whole business entirely. So like, there's just, uh, there's a book called the five dysfunctions of a team and, and mm-hmm. I didn't read it soon enough. And I was like, you should read it. But I kind of feel like it's just like, everybody's like, 
lean theory, you know, everybody needs to, <laughs> to read lean theory. It's like, you also need to read five dysfunctions of a team and, yeah. and diagnose if you've got that within your company and, and if you've got some founders entitlement and set those expectations early. And, you know, even things like, you know, I, I became the CEO out of the, the group of us that were co-founders because um, I had the most experience starting and running businesses. But if you really, like, look at it, that what's needed for the role, I was always the best one suited for it. But, like, right. sometimes that doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's like you just kind of hand out roles at the beginning. Yeah. And I hear lots of other companies that are like, they don't actually believe that the CEO is the right one to be doing it. And they have a different opinion. And ultimately, it just results in somebody leaving. And it's, there's got to be a better way. Um yeah, I yeah. to to share a, a parallel story or uh, fuck up. Um, we, I admittedly, we did this. My co-founder Ravinda, um, just a, he's like my right hand man, super solid. And when 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 we sort of formed the the, the original team, um, it was uh, myself, Ravinda, and Alex, our CTO, and. Um, and we put Rav into, you know, chief of sales, and um, because, like you said, resources are scarce, and we need <laughs> we need a salesman. And uh, Rav's not a salesman, and um, we quickly f- figured that out. And and luckily, luckily, Rav had fit um, because what we did is we transitioned him um, into head of experience. And now I, I've even had compliments of. Uh, Oddly, um, I never imagined this. Um, like from investors saying, uh, "I really like your org structure. Like it makes sense with the way like you've positioned your company, um, like being more experience focused, um, yeah. sort of bottom up go to market strategy, things like that." Um, but anyway, the, you know, the lesson there is is yeah, like that could have gone a completely other way. You know, we mm-hmm. put Rab into that position, and he didn't put up a fight. You know, he was you know, a little. Um, shocked when I brought it up to him, like, "Hey, man, this is not working. <laughs> You're not a salesman. You you can't enjoy this." And, you know, we came to this mutual agreement where, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm not very good at this, and I and I don't really enjoy. But it. yeah, e- even that though, right? As long as he was self aware, and as long as anyone in in that position is self aware, it kind of yeah. helps the case and it helps you guys move on quicker. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's what we ended up uh, getting to. But like I said, it could have gone. Could have gone, gone either way, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's tough. You may have to, for the first couple of years, have an uh, improper fit just to kind of yeah. get off the ground. Yeah, for sure. But then, you know, being transparent that, like, that is second that instead of being like, oh, let's just try it a bit longer, like, the second that you've got money, like, yes. to really put the money in filling that gap. Um, so, you know, worst case, if you couldn't have him move into sales right away, the second the money comes in, then hire somebody to do sales and then then move over. But it's sometimes hard, you know, it's hard to, those are difficult conversations. And I don't think that, uh, we had them soon enough and, uh, and we, you know, definitely learned since and, but it feels good to be in a place where like every director is, is accountable to their, to their position and nobody's there, um, because they, they feel like they have the right to be there. They, they've all learned it yeah, they, right they, through to yeah. co-founders. They are difficult decisions to make, right? I, I think that um, one of the things that I've learned is um, just by by going through those painful situations, the quicker you can do it, um, actually, the better. And it seems to, over time, just get quicker and quicker mm-hmm. and 
you can you can I agree. be more agile. I actually did the opposite. I forcefully put myself into sales because we were at a point where we needed to get sales going. That's an and interesting no, point. And no one was doing it, right? And I was kind of I was going back and forth between sales and marketing, so I put a little bit of a pause on the marketing um, in order to bring in accounts. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a really interesting point too. Is you know having to do what you've got to do. Yeah. And it's even, you know, not to go uh, too much off topic here, but uh, even what we were talking about or what, what we have talked about many times, um, not just when it comes to fit or the HR side of things, but even just really doing anything that you can to land those first couple of clients. And then once you do have that money, you know, once you are at that scale up um, phase, then you can kind of drop everything that you're doing. For example, we pick up the odd um, web development contract mm-hmm. here and there just to keep sure. cash coming in, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, I think the last you know kind of fuck up thing that I've I've learned that I that I can contribute um, is is not related to this, but goes a little bit back to. Um, I don't know if it's the Canadian side of me. I don't know if it's the woman side of me, but it's definitely something that, you know, we, we hear of a lot. So I was in the Valley about three years ago and I remember having lunch with somebody that was pretty exceptional if if they wanted to come on as an advisor and they kind of gave me hell and said, look, like, why would I want to join you? Like, you're not giving me a billion dollar vision. You know, you're giving me maybe a hundred million dollar vision, but you're not giving me a billion dollar vision. Like, why would I waste my time? You know, if I only have so many startups I can work with as an advisor, I want to go and, and work with the ones that have billion dollar visions. And I was like, yeah, 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 that's fine. But, you know, the reality is that that's kind of hung over me um, this whole time. And I'd say as more and more startups um, are able to get up off the ground and get going and, and, you know, the noise of who's trying to tackle things in the startup world gets, you know, noisier and noisier it starts to become more important that you have a really big vision and, yeah, and, right. uh, and that you get people that want to believe in that vision. Because if you stay on the lower level of functionality, then it's like, you sound like everybody else. The second that you have a big, big vision, the more you can separate from the crowd, right. especially if you can say why you uniquely can, can accomplish that big vision. But it was something that I really struggled with. And it was really only something in the last even six months that I've kind of found my, my really big vision and that I found my, for me, I've never been really good at kind of puffing out my chest and saying, we're going to be, you know, the next unicorn. And, and and I, you know, we, we, we get that criticism as Canadians that we're a little bit more modest Mm -hmm. and there's lots and lots of studies that talk about women, you know, even with jobs, if, uh, if there's a job post and a man sees that, you know, he only has like four out of 10 of the requirements, he'll apply, but a woman won't apply until she has like seven of the 10 requirements. And so, you know, I, I definitely felt like it was a little bit of that and a little bit of being Canadian, but I just felt like if I was being too, too like boisterous, too uh, much saying we're going to be a unicorn that it just felt like lying. It didn't feel real. And so I wasn't really able to sell something unless I really could see it. And so in the last six months, I've been able to see how we can accomplish this much, much bigger vision. And so I'm selling this much bigger vision when I'm fundraising now, but it's, it's one that I, it's because I really can see it fully. And I think that my failure is that, you know, it'll be easier next time in the future or the next big vision that we have. But I, I didn't have to wait until I had as many proof points as I have now. I didn't have to wait until I could fully, you know, map how to get from A to 
A to Z right now, like, or Z, like I didn't, I didn't have to wait until I could map everything to sell that bigger vision. We've always had this idea that we could do more and that what we had was important. Um, but it was like, I held back yeah. and I think holding back on that bigger vision was, was a fail, especially now that I have that bigger vision and I'm able to describe it and able to to um, articulate it. I'm like, damn it. You know, I probably could have done this a year ago. Um, I, so I feel like recently I've learned how to be really ambitious and bold with my statements without worrying about people saying, Oh, you're so bold. You're full of it. And I'd say in the early days you you run that risk, you know, before you have enough proof, people Mm -hmm. don't necessarily take you seriously. And so I think I shied away from being incredibly ambitious and bold because I didn't want people to say I was full of it. But now, because we've had so much success, I feel more confident to make these really big claims. Um, but my kind of, if I could go back in time, I wish I had done it a bit sooner and, and not waited for as much validation as we have now. Um, and just been okay with lots of people saying you're full of it because at least um, I would have been articulating our biggest, bigger vision that I always knew was true, but just wasn't articulating before. I, I could have saved time. It's such an amazing point. Honestly, it's so, so surreal hearing you say that because I, I've experienced the exact same thing over the last year and a half. And I think, um, I think it is a Canadian thing, um, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, having spent some time down in the Valley and, um, even this, you know, we interview lots of people from the, the Valley. Like I can, there's a clear dichotomy. And I think that, uh, you know, us as Canadians, if we if we know how to play our cards right, we have a a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that um, pragmatic viewpoint, um, and if we can get over the hurdle of uh, it's okay to think big, um, I think that uh, that we have a huge, huge competitive advantage here. I always it, it struck me. Oh, I heard it recently, and it was um, it blew my mind. I mean, there was some Atlantic. I don't, did I talk about this in the podcast? Right? Well, whatever. Um, there are some Atlantic can- Canadian companies um, uh, in the last couple of batches of, of 500 startups. And um, uh, what was amazing was they actually have huge visions and they're killing it because um, they had to think globally from day one. Right. Whereas I think actually, you know, being in the GTA in a way does us a bit of a disservice mm-hmm. because we're, we're still Canadian, <laughs> um, but we have enough of an ecosystem to trick us into thinking that, you know, there's a market around that us. it's big enough and that right. it's okay. Yeah. Right. I, I think right. that has something to do with it. It's you know, purely, purely my, uh, um, my opinion, but there's just some, some, some things I've seen and very, very interesting. And actually another, um, point, um, was one of, uh, one of the things Marvin, um, my investor told us as he, as he watched companies that took investment from the U S spend time in, in the Valley and then return to Canada. Some of them would return to Canada. Some of them would stay in, in the U S and he has, he says he has statistical data to say that the companies that return to Canada, mm-hmm. um, uh, failed on a much quicker, uh, higher rate. Wow. Um, of, the, of those, that, of the companies that stayed, in the, in, in the valley, I don't. And I don't. I say this, and it's. I know it's not binary, but um, I think there's there's 
there's lessons to be learned there and, and, and clear reasons as to, as to why. And I think Caitlin, I think part of, I think part of that is the vision. I also think the power of the Rolodex, I think that's the other thing that I really environment, right. Environment and the people around you. Um, yep. You can get, you can get to, you know, if you have some target customers in the Valley that those names will, will resonate far beyond the valley you know you can get to those companies if you're in the city where people are socializing yeah right you most likely know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody and you'll get there whereas yeah. if you're back in canada to get that introduction to get in front of them is going to be a lot harder yeah. and same thing when it comes to investors same things when it comes to getting to the heads of products so that your products can integrate yeah. with these yeah. these partners that could lead to acquisitions i think that it's the the network effect of you know it's so much of um you know, I, I, I look around in, in the ecosystem in, in Waterloo is that a lot of the companies that um, are successful here in town got into YC, then the next generation got into YC. And so now they're connected because they're both alumni. So yeah. mm-hmm. the more successful companies have opened up their Rolodex to the younger companies, which has accelerated their chance of being successful. Yep. Um, it sends signals like that that, that yeah. alumni has, is now sending signals to other places and those signals are allowing people to invest sooner, higher risk, because they kind of got the endorsement of the yes. of the ones that have already success, been successful. So if yep. you don't have that outside validation, 100%. that signaling happening, it can take a lot longer because everything's based on proof rather than yep. potential. Yep. And so I think the Valley allows potential to go a lot farther because of that signaling and because of the Rolodex and, and the networking of everything being in closer proximity. Yep, exactly. I think you can, being a Canadian company, to know that is really the the differentiator and then being able to play both of those things. Obviously, yeah. proximity um, proximity is key. Yeah. It, it's tough when, when you're physically located somewhere, right? But if yeah. you have the, if you can get to the point where you have the resources, um, you know, to have a footprint in both, I think it pays dividends. Yeah. And I think that it's, I mean, one of the big things that I tell um, Canadian startups, like without a doubt, every single one that I talk to, I say, go join a U.S. accelerator. And you're not going because your business necessarily needs it for its growth. You're not, you know, don't worry about the equity that you're giving up because what it's doing is it's shortening your cycle of success. It's shortening your fundraising time. It's shortening your, you know, the confidence for, for companies to, to take you on and, and to start using you because all of this is external validation that'll just speed up every cycle and it'll give you a network that you can, that you can exercise and, you know, tell, send, you know, Google the top 10, you know, if you're B2B, you know, accelerators, there's, there's a few of them, you know, and, and look at them. Yep. 500 obviously always comes up, but yeah. I, I do think that it's one of the things that we applied in the first couple of years and got into a Canadian accelerator and did that. But like we applied to, to YC and 500 startups and things like that in our early days and mm-hmm. we didn't get in. And so we just thought, Oh, well, you know, it's not for us. We're now established. And the thing is, I really think that if you've raised less than a million dollars, it's not too late to no. apply to any U S accelerator. And maybe even if you've raised a million dollars, like maybe yeah. it's even up to 2 million. It really depends on, you know, what your speed of growth is and your traction and, and the and the type of network that you have but like i would even say probably definitely into the like 1.5 million range you yeah. really are going to benefit from that network and that's the one thing i definitely got to go to the u.s through black box connect which is a two-week program and springboard enterprise which is a thing for women ceos and that helped like i got some but they were all two-week stints and they were much smaller networks of people whereas um 
So I got some taste of it, but I, you know, it's my one regret is that we didn't join like you guys did, didn't, didn't join a U.S. accelerator and didn't keep applying. Cause even though they reject you one year, doesn't mean that they're not going to accept you. Oh yeah. On. We got in on our third or fourth try or something there you go. like that. Perfect. Yeah. And I think, um, so yeah, this is just another really good lesson and, and key point here is the value of a network um, yeah. or actually even that a network is invaluable. So I think any, you know, any chance or any opportunity that you have to plug yourself in or, or to tap into these external networks, by all means, shoot for the stars there. Go yeah. for it. Absolutely. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, uh, Caitlin. We really, really appreciate uh, having you on today. It's been awesome, awesome chatting. Yes. Thank you, Caitlin. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was great being on your show. Awesome. You're welcome. Thanks, Caitlin. We'll, we'll chat soon.